Hey, so welcome and welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And as per usual, as per usual, I have a fantabulous, wonderful, exciting guest. It's somebody that I haven't met in person, but um, have had the pleasure of talking with him on a webinar, reading his book, um, talking to him before the book was published. We'll talk about the book in, in a little bit. And that is um, Dr. Alex Barnard. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself because you know I don't do the bio thing. Sure. Well, uh, you know, thank you so much for for having me. I'm really honored to get to have this conversation and learn more from you. So uh, yeah, I'm Alex Barnard. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at New York University. Um, I did my PhD at the University of California, Berkeley. I'm the father of two, including a four-year-old who, you know, on a podcast you can't see, but who loves drawing unicorns and rainbows. So maybe that's why I'm a I'm a good good guest for this. Um, and I, I wrote this book, Conservatorship Inside California's System of Coercion and Care for Mental Illness. And it emerges both from my research, but also from my experience as someone living with and, and with a lot of family members who have lived with, with mental illness. So that's been something that um, has been really present in both my academic and my non-academic life. So this is going to be somewhat the topic of the conversation, you know, about not so it's about the book, but it's also about sort of, you know, where we are with with uh, using coercion and, and and mechanisms of coercion to help people get into treatment, et cetera. And, you know, there's there's mixed opinions across the country and particularly, you know, what's happening in California and, and happening simultaneously in New York. But you are in New York, so let's just kind of start here. Like, why California? Like, let's maybe start a little bit there. Like, why did you write a book about California? Well, partly it was, you know, I was doing my PhD at, at Berkeley, though I did do part of my research in New York. So I think it's a it's a totally valid question. And I think California, why? like the reason it's worth doing this in California is that so many of the contradictions are just at their extreme in California, right? This is a state that used to have like the highest rate of incarceration in the world, one of the you know highest of any state, pretty much. Um, it's a state that is home to one half of the unsheltered homeless population. On the other hand, in 1967, California passed the Lanterman-Petrus Short Act, uh, which was hailed at the time as the Magna Carta or the Bill of Rights for the Mentally Ill. And it was you know, a bill that drastically limited involuntary treatment in the state and was one contributor to the pretty rapid downsizing of the state hospital system, which also coincided with a huge amount of cuts to social services uh, put in place by Governor Reagan. So it's this you know, place full of these contradictions that's both been at the forefront of granting rights to people with mental illness, but also uh, at the forefront of abandoning people with mental illness and, and sort of reneging on the state's obligation to these, these individuals. And right now, you know, because of the, you know, the sort of accumulated consequences of that, you know, the debate around forced treatment in California, I think, is 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 more intense than elsewhere in the country. And some of the expansions of involuntary treatment in California are are more dramatic than in other states. Although one of the things I'm doing right now in my research is documenting, you know, how many bills have been introduced around involuntary treatment in the U.S. And it's it's thousands in the last decade. But California has really been a, a leader in that. Wow. And I just I mean, that's really interesting that in the in the past decade, there have been thousands of bills to advance forced treatment. And I'm wondering, are you also counting the number of bills that 
expand and fund robust community-based voluntary services, you know, those upstream things that will hopefully support people, even those with the most serious and complex needs with, you know, what are considered serious mental health diagnoses that or their symptoms are exacerbated to the point of needing more support. So are you, are you counting like these, these are the number of, of uh, bills that advance coercion and these are the number of bills that advance and fund, because I'm going to do the funding part, right, um, and fund um, voluntary community-based services? So the, the project we're doing is, is looking at all bills that make some sort of reference to involuntary treatment, forced medication, civil commitment, guardianship, and conservatorship. So we are looking at both ends of that. And you do see some of these contradictory trends that a lot of states are talking about expanding civil commitments. They're talking about more things like Laura's Law, assisted outpatient treatment, so court-ordered uh, sort of obligatory treatment in the community outside of hospitals. And then some states are actually talking about things like supported decision-making, particularly since 2021, since the Britney Spears case became very prominent. There is actually more discussion about how to limit some of the restrictions of people's civil liberties and conservatorships. But most of the momentum, momentum is going towards more involuntary treatment. Now, state, including states, including California, are making investments in community-based services and peer services. It's not it's it's often not sort of flagged as or identified as specifically about reducing coercion. Um, and I think that's that's too bad because I think, you know, co- like the degree to which involuntary treatment is happening ought to be one of our most central metrics in the mental health system that we're using to evaluate its its performance. And so I think it is really important to have you know, bills that are saying like one of our outcomes that we want to see here is some, you know, reduction in rates of of coercion. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's also really important to to have bills that are really about this specifically because of what we know about, you know, racial in particular disparities in the use of involuntary treatment. So, you know, states need a plan about this. It's not, it's good to involve in, invest in community-based services, but I actually think and this is one of the things, you know, I argue in the book is like we need to be making those investments with actually like a really big focus on this group of people who are potentially being subjected to, to involuntary treatment as really like a key target population rather than just sort of people in, in general. Ooh, this is interesting, the way that that was phrased. So and I and I think this is what I've heard in the in the arguments for advancing um use of coercion and into treatment is that it's targeting or focused on a very small population of people because these are these are folks who haven't been you know attended to or focused on before it's not everybody and his sister it's just this very small population of of people I, I think what what I was trying to communicate is for example for for homelessness right and and people with Serious mental illness is a subset of homeless, you know, of homelessness in general. There's a lot of debates about what, how big of a subset. Um, but we know that, you know, in aggregate, the solution to to homelessness is is housing. It's affordable housing. Um, it's you know, independent, supported housing through a housing first model. You know, gets you into housing right away without conditions and offers you services afterwards. And like the the evidence is really clear that that is an effective model for like the vast majority of people who are unhoused. But I think, you know, in this book, and this is like this uncomfortable language of like target population, but in this book, I did document the stories of people for whom that model, it might not be the right model at all, but it especially might not be the right model right now. That that person, you know, potentially needs 
some treatment stabilization, but often a lot of cases they need kind of a new set of skills that living on the street is a requires skills to survive there, but those skills don't necessarily translate to, to living indoors. And as a result, you do see people who are placed in supported housing um, and are, are suffering from medical neglect. They're potentially, um, you know, extraordinary number of deaths from, from overdoses and supported housing in places like San Francisco um, and people lining up being evicted, which can make it really, really difficult to rehouse them. And so when I think about what I'm saying, we need investments that are really targeted towards that group of people. What I mean is that what is a solution to homelessness and kind of what is a, the right solution to homelessness and mental illness in general, which it might we might, might need to be a little bit more specific and a little bit more creative in how we work with and engage with the specific set of people who right now are on or at risk of going on to something like conservatorship, there's also a need for just much broader kind of preventative services or just general like social welfare services and the population in general to prevent us from, from getting to the point where, where we have this subset of people who have really complex needs for whom it's really, you know, it can often be really hard to see a voluntary solution to help those individuals. And so, you know, I, I, and I think that's actually like a trade-off that's being talked about right now with these reforms to the Mental Health Services Act, right? Like how much money is going to prevention and children and how much money is going to, you know, extremely high needs individuals who, you know, there are just extraordinary rates of, of death of people who are unhoused in California right now. And, you know, as long as we have a system that is willing, that is only willing to add, you know, allocate kind of finite resources to this this challenge then there are going to be some some trade-offs that that are just tricky it's very very complex so that's the other thing that i think you know we wanted to talk a little bit about is you know how do how do we respond to the okay and this is what i call it so just just get ready for what i'm going to say i know people are going to come at me but here we go i call it um dogma dropping or regurgitating rhetoric. And that's what it feels like sometimes, you know, in in the advocacy world is that things come down to a dogma soundbite. And that dogma soundbite then is regurgitated without thinking about what is it that you've just said? And how does that impact the other another person who maybe doesn't agree with you? And how does that help us work better together? I mean, this is a really incredibly uh, divisive issue. Yeah. And and, and I think that the rhetoric there's there's rhetoric on on both sides of this divisive yep. issue and you know I, and and i probably deploy some of it too right so don't you know but in the conclusion of the book i talk about what i call like the myth of the criteria and the myth of reagan so the myth of the criteria is this idea that there's this subset of people with psychosis they suffer from anisognosia the only thing that will work for them is going to be involuntary treatment and therefore the sort of solution is to change the criteria for involuntary treatment and then kind of all a lot of other things are going to fall into place because these individuals, you know, because the, the problem right near right now, the kind of core of the problem for some set of people is that the criteria are too, too strict. And I think there, there are many ways in my, which I, in my book, I try and present a more complex narrative than that. I try and suggest like when people are refusing services, it's a really complicated. There's a variety of factors that are going into that. One is the question of what are those services themselves when they we say they're refusing services or are they refusing a shelter bed are they refusing their own housing are they refusing some medication that didn't work for them are they refusing a psychiatrist or is it a peer that's making that offer so like i'm trying to complicate that picture mm-hmm. and also i think and this is really relevant to sb 43 
I'm also trying to say that I, the legal criteria, I think, matter a lot less than the organization of the system itself and what is resourced in the system. That if you have locked beds, uh, I think those locked beds tend to get filled uh, sort of regardless of, of what's in the law. So that's like one piece of rhetoric that I think is also tied to this idea of you hear the term dying on the streets a lot, which I think is also true. Like it's just factually true, like 2000 people died on the streets of Los Angeles, and it's just a cataclysmic social failure. But I think sometimes when we say that, we, you know, don't actually go step by step and ask, okay, why is that happening? And how much of that is really as a result of forced treatment versus all of these other, uh, a result of a lack of forced treatment versus all these other factors. Yeah, so SB 43 is uh, here in California, and it's a bill to expand conservatorship in a number of ways. And so I, I do, I struggle, I struggle with sort of, um, top notes, top lines, because I'm I'm intensely curious and I and I want to know, well, what's behind that? So I just can't stop at the top line and I'll go digging mm-hmm. deeper and deeper and try to understand, well, you know, again, how did how did a person get to this point or how did the system get to this point? And, you know, where are some of the places that we could be making change in order to support the person in the here and now and also prevent people from getting to the place where that person has arrived. And I think it also requires us not to kind of devolve into this, well, you're well now, you wouldn't understand, or you're recovered, you would. I I had a a legislator tell me that, a federal legislator tell me that in the middle of a hearing. And I was like, okay, wait, I can't go off on the guy. I just, you know, I'm sitting here. Like, you know, in in a hearing. And and by the way, I should say that this uh this legislator is also a uh psychiatrist. So I thought that was really telling that, you know, he he had this idea that somehow because one is doing well in the moment, they they would have no recall or understanding of what it was like when things were horrific and what things um they didn't like at that time and what things they did like at that time. And so I totally had to reframe reframe for him. So there were a couple of things that happened. First, I felt like there was stigma happening right there in the room, right there at that moment, right? He was making this, you know, grand assumption that somehow could only be made about people, you know, who have diagnoses of schizophrenia, since that's what we were talking about. And that's a diagnosis I live with. So I, I basically said, well, well, wait a second. Would you say that somebody who is in stage four cancer remission they're in remission now. Would you say to that person who's in remission, who might be sitting here talking about same type of legislation, that they wouldn't have understood what it was like when they were really, really ill? And he and he kind of stopped and he said, no, <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. I said, well, why would you say it for somebody who's living with a diagnosis of schizophrenia? So maybe what we should think about is not not so much the diagnosis per se, but I I think you know you're saying that a person who has a serious mental illness is seriously ill all the time and could not ever kind of get better, um, and if they do, somehow they're not going to um, uh, be afforded the same opportunity to speak into what it was like when things were really really bad. So I ask that we change the language from you know serious mental illness to well I think what we're talking about is what happens when you have a mental health condition and you're either seriously seriously ill and you have a whole bunch of complex things that are going on. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different reframe rather than saying people with schizophrenia are this way and this is the way they're always going to be and blah 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 blah. I mean it was really and he goes wait a minute what did you say? I told him, I said, I think we should really talk about people who have mental illnesses, since that's the word he wanted to use, mental illnesses, and you know what happens when they're super serious. I think that's what we're talking about. And that's going to be a whole host of things, not just this one thing. 
And so he actually agreed. And then he told me later, yeah, but it's more sexier if I say seriously mentally ill. And, you know, so it was all about sort of, again, the, 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 the tropes, the rhetoric, the dogma versus kind of like, wow, let's, let's, you know, roll up our sleeves and do the hard work here. But I, I think you're getting into something when, when you um, actually were talking about people saying that they want to be heard and that they want to have a sense of point A to point B and how do I, when and how, how do we get from point A to B and, and when am I done at point B? Like I'm out of here, bye, everything is, you know, yippee skippy kaye. I think the counter argument to that, so now I'm going to go to a counter just based on how I've understood the narrative of some folks is that, well, what happens if they have anazygnosia? I, I wanted to ask you that question. So I'm glad we can talk on, on this because I think, you know, I wrote something on care courts with a sociologist named Neil Gong. And, you know, we we talked about the civil court system in which, you know, people with schizophrenia spectrum or diagnosed as or identified as having that will be sort of brought in front of a judge. The judge is going to put in place a care plan and, so, you know, tell them that they need to comply with this care plan. And there's a potential threat of a conservatorship behind that. Well, we think maybe there is some value into in giving people kind of a firm nudge in some cases, like having a court make sure that there's a coordinated, persistent offer of services that maybe isn't going to force somebody to say yes, but is not going to immediately take note, like is going to keep persisting trying to engage that person. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, on one hand, there are people who say, well, that's just, you should take, take no for an answer. In a lot of other domains of life, we think you should take no for an answer. And so it's why do people with mental illness, why do you think you should just persist in trying to get that person to, to accept treatment they tell you they don't want? But then on the other hand, I think when you write something like that, you do hear some number of people saying, well, what are you even talking about? Anisognosia, it doesn't make any sense that you're, you have this idea that you should listen to people and like really try and figure out the services. Like there are some people, and again, some people, I don't think anyone's saying everyone, but like some people have anisognosia and therefore there's no, there's really no alternative to involuntary treatment in this moment. And in fact, if you treat them involuntarily, they will wind up thanking you. And I think a lot of families that have had this incredibly complex experience of having someone that they love, you know, often like psychosis emerges around the transition to adulthood. They work really hard to get the best services for their child and their child, again, who becomes an adult, right? So that, you know, then that's important. Like their adult, you know, the, you know, turns it down, right? To their seeming detriment. And they wind up incarcerated or, you know, horrible things happening to them. And anisognosia really does help make sense of that really senseless, that, that story. Like it helps them make sense of this sense of, you know, parenthood. This has not been the way they imagined having a child become an adult would look like. This is, they've done everything they thought they should do and, and they didn't get the outcome they wanted. And anisognosia is just like a really powerful frame for making sense of that. And I think it's, part of the story, but I think sometimes it's doing too much work in terms of explaining why people are not engaging with the system. I, I personally, I've part of this is related to family experience. Like I sort of, I've seen something like that, whether you want to call it anisognosia, I, I see the reality of that, mm -hmm. but it's so often mixed up with so many other things that are leading people to say no. Yeah. And so, yeah, so, so but, but I, I don't think it does any good to just pretend that it's not there at all. 
Yep. But I'd love to hear your pushback, or engage. I'd just love to hear what you. Think oh, I don't about. push people back. I push. I bring people in, just so you know. That's okay. Right. Sorry. <laughs> bring people in, as in um, wanting to have the discussion. And um, Karis never has all the answers. Karis never has the right answers, but certainly love to have the discussion because I'm I'm always open to learning too. By the way, so I learned something really, really valuable from Dr. Aaron Beck and his colleague, Dr. Paul Grant that I had never thought of before, and that is our reaction to the word no. The reaction on the provider side or family side or people who want you to do something they want you to do is, why aren't you doing what I told you to do? So no is a bad thing. And so one of the things that um, they helped me think about, and, and this was, they were not treating me, this was kind of in a, kind of trying to understand how to do the work in a different way, is that no is a very, very powerful word, and it's a word of autonomy. So if we don't listen to that no, because that's a person expressing their autonomy, their self-determination by saying no. So how do we understand the no rather than just kind of saying, I need you to do what I need you to do or what we think is best for you? How do we stop and understand all of the reasons behind the no? Um, and I thought that was really, really interesting because no puts up a barrier. It puts up, you know, just in kind of everyday conversation, no puts up a barrier of either pushing back to get to my yes or pushing back to get to your yes versus stopping and kind of saying, hey, wait, what does that no mean? That's super powerful. I'm so glad that you're expressing your autonomy and your self-determination. Help me understand what that no means. We don't do that. Also, I think that, and I have seen and work with people and know people and um, who do not believe they have a mental health condition, do not believe that they need help. But there are so many things that they do believe. And I'm like, wow, that's a really interesting place to start where they don't have the opportunity to achieve some of the things they would like to achieve. And they'll blame it on all sorts of other stuff that's going on about why not. But um, trying to um, work with them on that thing that they really want to do is... Um, kind of outside of the way we think about a medicalized model of helping someone. So I think that's where we miss um, incredible opportunities to um, create relationship with someone, to build trust with someone, um, when we're not kind of taking into an account that, you know, there may be beliefs about lots of things that are so important to them that we're not focusing on because we're so in paying attention to the thing that they're not accepting we miss these opportunities because we're so focused on, well, they have anazignosia, so they have no insight. Well, what do they have insight about? Mm. The more I think about what happens kind of, or what our expectations are, we're just talking to somebody yesterday about this word adherence. Well, you go into treatment and you're, you're only going to adhere if you take the medication and you have to adhere to the medication, blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, hmm, that's interesting. How do humans adhere to medication? They don't, they don't do so well. Like the you know, majority of human beings don't take medication as prescribed. They don't follow through. They don't take it at all. Maybe they'll fill the prescription. They'll take the pill once. They'll sit it there. Uh, they'll take the medication. They'll feel better. And they're like, oh, I don't need to take the rest of it. Boom. And it's off to the side. That is a natural human thing. However, um, when it becomes about, you know, oh, a serious mental illness, it's like we're not allowed to be human. So because you have this court order with these consequences, you're holding a person accountable to being superhuman. And I don't, that's problematic for me versus again, helping a person understand we all struggle with taking medication. 
What does medication mean to you? What does the taking of medication mean to you? Uh, one of my psychiatrists, you know, didn't didn't much talk to me about the the side effects of medication. And when I brought one up and said, hey, you know, my goal, speaking of goals, who gets to set those goals? My goal was to have children and to be a mom. And one of the medications stopped my moon time, as we call it, menses. And, um, oh, yeah, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. And wow. so I kind of didn't. And then I was like, no, I think I need to worry about that. I said, but wait, I want to have children. And I said, is is the medication like stopping my period? And, and, and they said, yes, that's actually what it does. And I'm like, okay, well, then I don't want to be on this medication. That's the no. That's the power of no. And now I need the person to listen to the no. But the the consequence of the longer term use of this medication is that I'm not able to have children. So there goes one of my goals, right? Now I can adopt children, but now I can't adopt children in certain places because I've been involuntarily hospitalized. So there are all of these complexities. Like when we're talking about the goals and the consequences, these things do have consequences to people that impact why they want to be involved or not. I mean, that life goal is shot for me. It's shot. Then, then how do I even trust the system that has like killed my life goal? I wanted to be a mom since I was like, I don't know, three, four, <laughs> you know, it's just not going to happen um, because it kind of got effed up by the system. So now what, you know, where, where do you rebuild my trust? Now it has been rebuilt clearly, but that's the part where when you're, when we talk about anisognosia and understanding where and how we can work with people who don't believe that they need treatment I think there are lots of different ways to do it. The medicalized system doesn't permit it. That's a systemic barrier. Absolutely. I mean, I think one thing I say sometimes is that I think we need a mental health system with a more realistic sense of how human psychology works. So it's sort of ironic that the mental health system, I think, has a totally flawed vision of how humans make decisions. It's, I mean, this is going to seem like a ridiculous comparison, but my students need structure for their decision making. Like they need some incentives. They need help getting things in in time. And, you know, our mental health system has this incredible binary is like sometimes we say voluntary means, you know, if you say no, we're going to close out your file and it's going to be extremely complicated for you to get back into the system. You're going to be assigned to a totally new clinician and like we start over. Or we're going to coerce you and it's like all or not, like it's 100%, right? Like you make no decisions now. Your no doesn't matter at all. We're not listening to it. But it, but this, I think this requires both sides of this debate to give a little bit because we need actually a mental health system that can work in the kind of gray zones of human volition where people are, so, you know, sometimes they know they need something, but they're not really sure that what you're offering is what they need. And there's just a really complicated space in between what we refer to as voluntary and what we refer to as involuntary in this this binary way. And I, I just do want to recognize, I think in this conversation about involuntary treatment, there are these collateral consequences of somebody being involuntarily hospitalized. And I also, at some point in my life, for my own reasons, became aware that if on an adoption application, you have to note that. It's not equivalent to that, but like, you know, the TSA is keeping track. Like there are a lot of institutions actually in our, you know, it's it's funny that the state of California can't actually tell how many people are involuntarily hospitalized because there are lots of institutions that are paying attention and tracking that. And so in some ways it's surprising that our health system doesn't track that in any accountable 
way because these things actually do follow people they do for they years do. and their whole life yeah even you know when i went to work for the federal government there is a there's a mental health question and a substance use question and the mental health question in particular the question is also looking um it, it asks if you have a mental health condition it asks if you're still in treatment it asks if you've had any kind of involuntary hospitalization or any kind of um involuntary court order kind of things based on having that mental health condition so i had to answer those questions you, you do have to answer them honestly of course it's a government it's a government application so then what what um happens is um uh, somebody will come out and and they'll they'll talk first of all they'll talk to your provider so you have to give your provider name, which could create a breach between you and your existing provider when um, somebody from the federal government has to call and ask about your fitness to do the job. <laughs> you know, what if you don't get the job because the psychiatrist said no? Well, that might be kind of a hard thing. But they and they have to talk to your neighbors and then they come out and they talk to you. And so I, I met the uh, adjudicator woman. And um, she said, oh, I see that you checked um, yes here on having a mental health condition. And I said, mm-hmm. She goes, and what is your diagnosis? And I thought, oh, this is not going to go well. <laughs> I mean, immediately I was like, should I be broad? Should I? And I said, and then I got nervous. I get very literal when, when, that, when that kind of thing happens. And I said, well, I have a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And I mean, literally, it was like she closed her book. Like she closed her book, conversation, we're done. And I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on? And she said, well, are you in treatment? And I said, yeah, it says right there who my psychiatrist is. So you take medication for this? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, oh, well, um, um, and I said, look, this is going to be my job. I'm going to be the director of the Office of Consumer Affairs at SAMHSA, at the Center for Mental Health Services. And though it is not a requirement of the job, it certainly is an asset of the job to be a person who has experienced these things, who's going to be looking at um, you know, uh, you know, the 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 consumer and, and family involvement in creating the services and supports that we want for our country. So it will be incredibly important to have a person who has these experiences, who has that lived experience to be in this position. That's why I was courted to apply for the job, why you're sitting here and why we're having this conversation. <laughs> oh, okay. So she opened up her book and we continued on. I mean, that could have been the end of that. I mean, it couldn't have. You you can't deny a person a job just on that. There are a whole bunch of other factors they look at. But, um, you know, how many people get to that point in the um, standard form and stop and don't apply for a job? And they would be excellent for that job because that's been a barrier. So, I mean, there are in, 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 um, really big consequences. But I think what happens is people are looking, as you said, at the here and now. And it's very hard for them to see, well, my loved one's never going to work for SAMHSA because they can't see it and they, they can't see it in the here and now when they're when their loved one or they themselves are not doing well. So I can appreciate that. And I'm also working really, really hard to appreciate the frustration, anger, and trauma of family members who and the fear of seeing their loved ones not get better and, and not get the lives they deserve. And I think that that's also what drives me, not, not just what's happened to me, what I see happening to my peers, what I see happening to my community members, when I see people who are you know very, very um, ill and not being able to get into treatment or not finding treatment that they would like or housing that they would like. So, you know, things get, you know, worse and worse and worse. But but also because I just see over and over and over and again the same family members just with the same struggles. And like, what the heck? Why is that? 
And, and I think like with with the bill like SP 43, you know, it, it, and, you know, you can disagree, but I think we like there are people who are advocating for these kind of pieces of legislation for the wrong reasons that are kind of I think there's some, some street clearing reasons, getting people, you know, mm-hmm. we've got the Olympics coming up kind of reasons. And then there are people who are advocating for these reforms for really the right reasons. And I think that that's really, that's really important. And I think it looks like SB 43 is going to be implemented very little initially across the state. But that is why I think, I think there are both groups like Disability Rights California that are going to litigate the heck out of it. And that's their job is to do everything in their power to try and prevent it from going into place. But I think there's also, I think there are cases where it would be really helpful to have a convening, you know, to have everyone on board, even regardless of how they feel about whether this legislation should be in place, but to think about how this tool can be used in the most accountable way to help people who are being failed by the system right mm-hmm. now. Yeah, and I and I hope we can also work on again, I don't know if the word is fixing, fixing the rest of the systems. And, and again, it's not one system. I think um historically um, mental health has been called upon to take on a lot of um social stuff, like social structural stuff that was decimated in the seven uh, the seventies and eighties. And that's not technically mental health's job, but that's what mental health has been called to do because the person interacts with all of these systems, sort of that intersectionality with employment and housing and other public health and substance use, et cetera, but it will fall on mental health that generally does not have the resources to do it all. So, you know, I, I would also love to see us, meaning all of us who who are concerned about, number one, anybody with a mental illness, as well as people who are in most need right now, because we don't want anybody with a mental health condition to end up in most need because we've neglected the rest of the system, right? Is is how can we come together and think about, you know, what is it that we really need to have robust systems of care, safety net care, to support people along their trajectory or, or road or interaction with a mental health or substance use condition. That's my wisdom dropping. I don't know. Do you have any <laughs> do you have any wisdom dropping or anything else you wanted to make sure we we touched on? I, I know people are like, what about the book? We can link to some things or people can hear you talk more about the book. But yeah, is there anything else that um, we should touch on? I, I guess this would be like one other thing I would say is you know, there's a discourse that's out in the public sphere. And then when you actually get face to face and have a longer conversation with people, I think there are actually a lot of people have a really nuanced and thoughtful take on this, right? And some of the people who are advocating for SB 43 are also the ones who see the complete failing of a lot of these involuntary services and want humane places for people to go and want investment in upfront voluntary services too. And I think, I think some of the Folks who are really opposed to FSB 43 are also thinking really hard about what voluntary should mean and how we can rethink voluntary in a way that's more realistic. So, like, I, I think trying to have more conversations that are a bit more direct and that involve a bit more list. I think that's the lucky thing about a sociologist is, you know, here I am talking at you, but actually mostly for the book, I just listened for, I mean, hundreds of hours of just listening to people. And there's just people have so much wisdom. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, um, you know, we'll put a link to the book um, in the podcast description because, you know, it is really worth a a read. It's a big book, as I've said, 
<laughs> tome. <laughs> it's a tome. I, I don't know how many pages a tome is, but um, it's a big book. Um, and I said that lovingly that it's a tome. And it's it's really worth the read, if uh, especially to kind of get that holistic picture of the history, the stories. It's just, it was really, really amazing. It's taken me a while to get through it, um, but it's really, really an amazing book and gave me new language about things that I'm still looking at even right now in SB 43 or anything is like, well, is the state abdicating its, you know, authority or not? I, you know, we'll have to see um, how, how that goes. So I really want to thank you for joining me on the podcast and, and having this um, conversation. You know, I didn't want it to be a straight up interview, but just more of a, you know, what are our thoughts about this, you know, based on your book and based on our, both of our experiences. So thank you so much for joining me. It's an honor to get to talk to you. Thank you. Awesome. All right, folks. So you know what to do. Um, You can like, subscribe, comment, and also make sure to um, share. And we will see you next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns.